Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and I'm here on another edition of The Shrink and the Pundit with my good brother, Dr. Keith Witt. Hey Keith, how you doing this morning? Doing great, how are you doing? I'm doing great too. It's good to talk to you again. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was traveling uh, out to Budapest to do the Integral European Conference, and it was a great event. And one of the most gratifying parts of it was meeting those of you who listened to this, <laughs> and particularly yeah. the Shrink of the Pundit. And so, you know, we just want to have a shout out and an appreciation, and uh, it, it really is gratifying. Yeah, thank you, our listeners and fans, and and particularly it touched my heart that you that you're in Europe. I admire Europe so much myself and, and European culture and social democracy that it's just warmed my heart that there's people in Europe that are enjoying and benefiting from our talk. So thank you, you guys. Uh, keep writing and commenting. We love that stuff. <laughs> so, Keith, a couple things just in catch-up. I was just commenting to you before we really started recording about your new website. It's looking great. And it's drkeithwit.com. It's the School of Love. I love that. And you have some courses and your book's out. Do you want to just tell us a bit about that up front here, and then we'll get into what we're talking about? Yeah. yeah the, the courses, uh, one, first one's free, second one costs $10. They're designed to present um, as easily and as enjoyably as possible different perspectives because we're looking for transformative insights, all of us. And particularly in Integral, we know that that since it's a chaotic systems, complex systems, a little bit of input from a certain direction can have a big effect. And so I wanted to, to do something that would help that happen. And so uh, you sign up for the course and you get one of my therapists in the wild videos and you get a blog and you get a, a series of suggestions of things to practice for a week. But the idea is that if you practice that stuff over a period of six weeks, that in the process, something about the process or something about one of the segments will be that little bit of input that will help you, uh, one of the systems in your consciousness transform in a good way. Because that's how I've found that I've grown. Uh, for instance, what you wrote from the European conference about talking to Bensi and everybody about the European attitudes as, opposed, as it contrasted with Americans. And then that three-and-a-half-minute video of how the borders of Europe have changed in the last thousand years yeah. really changed my understanding of Europe and America in terms of level of uh, security, uh, political security. Uh, yeah. Because in America, we've had the same... Uh, essentially, we've had a stable uh, uh, nation state for 200 years. And I thought, yeah. wow, how is that? And so little things, you know, things like that. I, and so that was my, that is my intent in those classes. And, and of course, in integral mindfulness, it's to help um, people get excited about uh, integral mindful living. Um, I think that that's a great way to go. And, and I wanted, I wanted to share a lot of uh, ideas and insights and, so far, people who've read the book have enjoyed it a lot, and they say it makes them yeah. laugh, and it gives them some gives them some ideas. Yeah, it's a great book. It's it's uh, what Keith is talking about is Integral Mindfulness, which is a book. That, I guess it's on Amazon now, Keith, and also mm -hmm. ten bucks, right? Um, no, I think I think it's eighteen dollars for the book. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, but th it's what we've been talking about in past 
Shrink and the Pundits, a lot of the same topics. And um, so huh. it's a great book. I wrote the foreword. Yes, you did. It's a great foreword. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Well, Keith, let's talk about the subject of the day here. And it's a really, yes. really interesting one, a kind of a surprising one to me that you wanted to talk about it. And uh, it's, you've been making me think about it. Uh, and it's the co- topic, basically, the way I see it is the topic of truth. Yeah. And how we really deal with truth as a practice. Truth being, you know, one of the big three dimensions of values gravity, the things that are actually pulling us forward in evolution, goodness, truth, mm-hmm. and beauty. And how we relate to that in our intimate relationships, in uh, how, you know, a sense of our own authenticity, our self-expression, our deepest knowing, um, mm-hmm. our families, politics. And it's really, I must say, I listened to a conversation you had with Patricia Albert, who's the founder of the Evolutionary Collective. And of course, you were a member of the Evolutionary Collective for many years. And it's a wonderful conversation. It's on her, her site. Uh, and you, you guys focused on lying and you know the mm-hmm. damage that's done by lying. So I just, I, I love the territory. I just want to say once again, Keith, you got me thinking. So I guess I just stop there and invite you to share a little bit of, of what you're thinking about this topic. I've believed for a long time that violence is the number one problem of the world. And doing unnecessary harm or doing d- deliberate harm for a variety of reasons. Uh, and there's less physical violence in the world today than previous times. It doesn't seem that way. I mean, we just had this horrible shooting in Santa Barbara that kind of just blanketed the city oh, yeah, with depression the last week. Was in Santa Barbara. Oh, Lord. Oh, God, it's a fucking nightmare. Yeah. But that being said, there's less physical violence in the world today. But there's a lot of emotional violence. And most emotional violence is some form of a lie. It's Mm -hmm. some form of damage. And like lies themselves just are not by definition a bad thing. You know, lies Mm -hmm. are just a form of discourse, just like touch is a form of discourse. And so, you you know, 25% of lies are told purely for the benefit of the person being lied to. Um, and so those lies, and, and those, those lies are somewhat innocent lies, and those are lies when they come out, and, you know, about a fifth of lies often will come out when you lie to people. They're, they're not experienced with much damage. You know, if I see you in the hospital bed and you look like you're going to die in about 10 seconds, and I go, wow, you're looking a lot better than you did, you know, yesterday, that lie is just designed to help you feel better, and you're not going to feel bad if I tell you a week later. You know, when I told you you look like you're looking better, I was actually worried you're going to drop dead in, in 10 seconds. <laughs> so you it's a form of discord. later. <laughs> yeah. right. No, it's really true. This is, you know, a lot of us, I think this really comes online in the green meme. It certainly carries forth in, 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 in good stead into integral, and that is I want to be real. I want to be authentic. Yes. This thing of authenticity. So does mm-hmm. authenticity mean I tell you what I really think? Or does authenticity mean that I am for you in another way? I, 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 this is, I mean, this is what has actually got me thinking. And I, I like that it's sort of up as it's more complicated than it seems at first. Really complicated because 
my level of, of openness with you is determined to a certain extent by my depth of consciousness and by my evaluation of you. Um, yes. This is one of the reasons that, that people will make rules in groups. We're not going to talk about religion or politics. Right. And they make those rules because they have no confidence in their ability to talk about religion and confidence and have a dialectic rather than diatribes. They don't really yeah. have faith in each other's abilities to do that or in their own ability to do that. Well, they're probably so, quite accurate. And they are accurate because the only time that you can really have consistent dialectics along those, those kinds of topics are when you're at a teal altitude. And, you know, yeah. not many people can maintain, not, how many groups do you get where you have everybody being able to maintain a teal altitude in different topics? For instance, a topic that I'd like to have with you in the future, maybe even our next talk, is I'd like you and I to describe two or three of our current favorite spiritual practices. Because I've observed that there's a taboo about talking specifically about your personal spiritual practices publicly. Yeah. And I've, I've made it a point over the years to ask people when they prayed what they were experiencing and how they experienced God. And it's interesting, I get the same reaction as I get when I'm in a session and asking people about sexual fantasies or really? sexual practices with couples. There's, a, there's, yeah. a, there's a, a subtle taboo around that. And yet, in integral dialectics, we, more and more we have uh, uh, honesty that is characterized by transparency um, yeah. and also by compassion. I, I believe that the word uh, brutal honesty is an oxymoron. I think it's a mm -hmm. contradiction in terms. I think that the truth, if you're, if you're coming from all four quadrants, is always compassionate. Um, yeah. And if it's not, then there's a lie in it. There's a subtle violence. There is being influenced by one of the quadrants um, that you're not aware of that's causing you to hurt someone or to do damage to someone or to yourself. Yeah. Uh, almost all psychotherapy involves people lying, where people lie to themselves about themselves. Super anxious people are lying to themselves about how dangerous the world is. Super angry people are lying to themselves about how other people are um, being mean to them. Super depressed people are lying to themselves about the possibilities of having a joyful life. Um, super shamed people are lying to themselves about the magnitude of past offenses and the c capacity of uh, fully accepting themselves into the future. And people are very invested in, in these, these systems. Of, mm -hmm. And also the, the other thing is that you notice the beautiful, good, and true standards are basically emphases, that, but they influence each other because... You know, as we know, there's, there's absolute truth, which is, you know, oneness with, with pure emptiness, and everything else is relative truth. And right. so basically, truth is a process. It's a commitment to doing the best that I can to say what I believe is the compassionate truth in an appropriate way in the present moment, and that's always an imperfect system. Mm -hmm. um, I would just well, pause you there, Keith, and sure. say that's a beautiful rule of thumb. If I, if I think about... Uh, truth is a practice. Okay, this is now part of my integral practice to just be aware of how I'm telling the truth, how I'm spinning the truth, how I'm using the truth, how I'm using lies, and, you know, the whole bit. I mean, just my human interaction. Because I lie, you know. Oh, yeah. I, sometimes I lie, lie to the yeah. other person. Yeah. But am I doing what I'm doing out of compassion as best I could discern it and love? 
in the present moment is a pretty good practice. That's a pretty good standard to hold each moment to, right? Yeah. Also, it's, the statistics online are kind of hilarious. 85% of college students have lied about a previous relationship or, or current indiscretion. 50% of, college, 50% of conversations that college students have with their mothers, they lie. Yeah. Um, people who are dating lie to each other 30% of the time in their interactions. Uh, in 10% of serious conversations with couples, they lie to each other. The person yeah. that you're most likely to lie to is your most intimate person. Yeah. People will lie on an average of a couple times uh, a day. I mean, it's, just, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. Uh, and, yeah, and these totally. are people consciously telling the truth, consciously telling the truth and consciously lying. It's an interesting soup, you know, that we yeah, swim it in is. with each other. The contrast, it's, it's very useful to examine the world in, in dialectical terms. Because you, you, take, you take two kind of different forces and you look between them, and in between them we find the new forms emerging. That's what the whole concept of a dialectic uh, is. And so that happens with truth and lies. If, if we're dealing with, with lies hurting people, for instance, um, all the time I'll be working with an individual and when they start going into their trauma story or their suffering or whatever the issues are, you can see their, their, their perspectives distorting away from what is an objective truth to other people. Um, mm. um, there's a whole syndrome that happens um, with women, for instance, where they just feel like they're frauds, no matter how successful they are. This is especially true with black women. So you'll, you'll find women that have PhDs and have incredible amount of, uh, of success and, and, and so on, and you ask them in a, in a moment of, of candor, so how did you become so successful? And they'll say things like, oh, I was lucky. Um, I knew the right people. Um, it's very hard for them to take pleasure in the truth of their accomplishment. They have an endogenous lie that was put into them in the developmental cycle where they can't feel good about themselves or see the beauty in themselves, and so they'll turn away from that. When I asked Ken what he noticed about people that were gathering in the Integral Institute, he said what stood out to him is that the people didn't realize how beautiful they were, or how deep they were. Yeah. And I thought, well, there's a cultural pathology where we are encouraged to hold lies about ourselves you know, we, we focus a lot in psychotherapy how we're, we're kidding ourselves about dark shadow material, you know, destructive stuff. But it works on the other side also. Um, and, and actually, that's a lot more problem to, in a way than our violent or selfish selves mostly in therapy. It's people not being aware that they're safe. They're not being aware that they're loved. They're not being aware that they're right. good people doing the best that they can. But isn't this just, I mean, this is, this is growth. I mean, there's there's... I don't know. There's no need to see it as lying or pathology. It's just what we haven't seen yet. Right? Well, yeah, I think that the thing about the lying and the truth part of it is that if we keep the cross-validating from, from all four quadrants, we begin to see the characteristic ways that we delude ourselves and other people. For, for instance, I found that healthy people in every worldview tend to relate in a caring way when they have somebody in their face, somebody in person. 
Okay? But they can objectify other people when people are not around. For instance, um, blue can embrace a lie if they feel like it's virtuous. They can hold on to something that is not verifiable from uh, other quadrants if it's virtuous. Orange will hold on to a lie if it's legal and profitable. And so I, I remember interestingly seeing a, listening to a football coach. Some guy, some poor kid got just knocked out of a game by a linebacker while he was running. He didn't see the guy coming. And the coach gleefully kept saying, it was a legal hit. It was a legal hit. That for him, you know, an orange died in the wool, blue-orange guy. The fact that this poor kid might have been killed didn't matter that much because it was a legal hit, you see. Mm-hmm. And green will tilt at windmills. And this is like the very, very far end of progression people, progressive people being really pissed off at Obama. You know, not being more... Um, pursuing basically impossible goals, but just for, on principle. Okay, well, right. you know, if you cross-validate that from all four quadrants, the people that have made the biggest difference have been the people, particularly Clinton and, and, and Obama have done this, by incrementally doing what they can to move in the direction that they want to go. Exactly. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the truth of how that happens in, in most situations. Yeah. And so, you know, you could, if now if you cross-validate that stuff from all four quadrants, it really kind of accelerates your development. Absolutely. And it really runs off of, okay, what's, where, where am I lying to myself? Where am I telling myself the compassionate truth? Um, mm-hmm. it, happens in, it happens in therapy all the time. You, you know, if, if, if all therapy was just focusing on what was a distortion or a lie and what was the compassionate truth, that basically is good therapy. Um, yeah. Just that discrimination. I think that, in a way, all levels justify lying to other levels a lot yes. easier than... I mean, we all justify less moral consideration for those that we see outside of our circle, or, the or other, from whoever the other is. Or from Teal, we justify it in terms of, I see more than you do, and so I'm going to determine how much truth you can handle. Which is kind of a patronizing position, really. It's patronizing, but at least it's not malicious. It's trying to, you know, however ham-handedly, um, <laughs> do good for the whole system, at least. I actually think that's true of the earlier levels, too. I think yeah. people who are at blue or amber, the traditionalists, they, they will lie and spin and whatever they need to do because they actually think that it's better for everybody if we yeah. have a traditional world. So, you yeah. know, I think we could say that about everybody. Yeah. So it's just interesting to see and how we, you talk about, you know, politics and Obama, how we project our hatred for our own lies and mendacity on the politicians. Oh, we have yeah, this weird, so... weird profession of having to lie openly. Yeah, and it's culturally, thing. and culturally we've normalized it. Not only have we yeah, normalized well, it, but you... I, I think because it's normal. I mean, it, well, it's actually the best, the best we got. Not only is it normal, but the culture normalizes different kinds and levels of lies with different worldviews. For instance, there are lies that are completely tolerated and normalized both by the culture of the media, by the culture of the media and by everybody in blue, but not normalized in orange and not normalized in green. 
If a green person tells a lie that's characteristic of a, for instance, a blue person can say Obama is Hitler, and everybody, nobody really blinks an eye. You get a progressive green person says, you know, John McCain is Stalin, and you're going to have a groundswell of rage sweep through the country, and everybody's going to say, how dare you say that? Much more outrage, because everybody unconsciously expects green to not tell those kinds of lies and expects blue to tell those kinds of lies, and so they, they normalize it and don't really realize that their level of reaction is determined by their own lower left standards for that particular value mean. Just fascinating. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's a really good, you know, raising of the resolution of all of this. And to to me, the the whole concept of violence is, is an important one, because partly maybe because I came from martial arts, and in, in retrospect, studying martial arts as many decades as I did, that one of the reasons that I studied it is I never understood violence, never understood it growing up, never understood it. I, I, you know, I was encouraged to be violent as a child. My parents were both teachers and told me if a kid gives you shit, you know, if he hits you, hit him back harder. These are teachers right. telling me this. Yeah. Always yeah. felt wrong to me. The thing that I love well, most it, about it's a, well, you know it's good traditional training. It's traditional. Yeah. The, well, yes. You know. Well, and and so it, it, I always thought I was a wimp because I hated that. And yeah, I, me too. I mean, I couldn't do it. I well, and I when I started studying karate, one of the things I loved about karate is that the violence was completely. Um, it was it was really blue. It was, there is virtuous violence in a karate studio and non-virtuous violence. There are shots that you can take or give that are virtuous and shots that you can give and take that are not virtuous and there were black and white lines about those shots. Um, and there was always respect between opponents. And I, I just couldn't for the life of me understand as an adolescent why it felt so different being in a karate studio facing you know, a ravening opponent and then being on a schoolyard and having some guy say, do you want to meet me after school? Yeah. Completely different experience. And so yeah. that led me in psychotherapy to basically psychopathology involves people doing violence to themselves and other, in, uh, and other people. In the most extreme forms, of course, it's suicide, self-mutilation, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. But in its most subtle forms, which we all have to deal with, is in you know, the unnecessary suffering that comes with consciousness. Uh, for instance, uh, say somebody's obsessive. So I have a client that I worked with who worked on her anxiety for years in therapy and, and did mindfulness training, did exercise, did yoga, still anxious. So we were exploring that where her anxiety came from. She had a habit of consciousness where if there was anything going on, she would project it into a scenario in the future where she had no control over it, and then basically function at that level and generate tons of anxiety trying to solve a problem that she had generated that was an unsolvable problem. This was a habit of consciousness. So all the things that she did, the soothing, the breathing, the yoga, the exercise, even the self-talk, was basically in, in opposition, kind of like isometric exercises in your brain, against this habit of consciousness. And until she addressed that habit of consciousness, where she basically lied to herself about the present moment, she was, she was juxtaposing on an imagined, un, uncontrollable scene with the current moment where she had a lot of influence and operating in as if they were psychic equivalents. 
And so when that now you know as as you know you and I have said millions of times, self observation is what is the is the gateway into self transformation. When she observed that she had a habit of consciousness of taking herself there, then the step became observing when that happened and bringing herself back to the present moment where she actually had some influence over whatever it is that was bothering her. And that began to have a much more profound effect on her anxiety because she would basically had normalized telling herself a lie about that. Yeah. It reminds me of what you were talking about last uh, episode where we talked about habits and yeah. that the best way to break a habit is to have another thing to do when you feel the craving for uh-huh. the bad habit. And for her to stop and just come back to the present moment, that's as simple as it gets. But yeah. what a powerful tool. Yeah. And, in, and it's also you good to realize that violence, and, and even telling lies, telling lies, cheating, that kind of stuff, is self-reinforcing. They studied people that cheated on tests, and they expected people to feel ashamed afterwards. They didn't. They felt euphoric. They'd gotten away with something. <laughs> People who lie feel a little sense of relief and not much and not much regret after they lie. People that do violence to someone they're mad at feel a certain sense of pleasure. That's reinforcing. If you can observe that, then you can begin to back away from the worst addiction there is, which is the addiction to violence. Um, yeah. And you'll see this with, with, I see this most in intimate relationships and families and couples. Once a couple or a family starts normalizing a violent discourse, you know, being nasty to each other, mean to each other, critical, dismissive, and so on. That little bit of reinforcement about letting yourself be nasty builds over time until it becomes a habit where you're just not treating each other in a very friendly way. And interestingly, people who have a good same-sex friend lie less because they have a relationship where, that's, where they just can't normalize being mean to someone, which is a form of lie. They can't normalize it because a good friendship with a same-sex person, you kind of maintain a certain level of care and compassion. And then that bleeds over into other aspects of your life. Um, and so they're less likely yeah. to lie. Yeah, well, you know, if you lie to a friend too much, and you were talking to Patricia about this, that, that lying, and this is something that I think we, we get more proficient at as we develop, is lies create a subtle distance, a distancing in the subtle body, and not to mention the, the mental body. That's the part that's not self-reinforcing. You start losing connection with people the more lies you tell, even subtly. People who lie habitually were asked how they felt about dialogues that involve them lying, and they said they found those dialogues both less intimate and less interesting. Yeah. And, and so... Even liars find conversations where they lie less intimate and less interesting, which I found fascinating. Well, it makes me think of, yeah, it makes me think of what we just did this last weekend here in Boulder, the Integral Living Room. We did the mm-hmm. second iteration of that, and we had 75 people here and these amazing integral people. And I think of what Ken said about these people don't realize how beautiful they are. And, and I think yeah. there's also, they don't, in some ways, they don't realize how true they are. I mean, we would just I have guess. instant intimacy pretty much i mean you know what i mean it was just but yeah. we would go instantly into territory where we just didn't have to be so and, and we begin to see some of the downsides of green here mm-hmm. where we have to be a little bit too careful and suffocated and not offend and take everybody's sensitivities into account 
And at integral, there's a, there's a relaxation of that. And there's a raggedness to the truth-telling that I think it's characteristic of integral. Yeah, it was, what did Kerry call it? Post-rhetorical uh, something. <laughs> and, you yeah. know, I think that's healthy. That's, in a way, that's healthy purple. If you have an area, say, in the jungle or something, or where there's tribes that are related, they'll have a time every year or two years where they all get together and they have some kind of a shared uh, membership where there is blood kinship, but it's coming together of the tribes in a certain level of acceptance of differences. And yeah. I think that's healthy. And that's yeah. beautiful. I, f- I felt that when I was at the living room, too. It was, it was really yummy. Yeah, we have think- like little conflicts, and you know, they go away, and people... It's so fun because nobody's sticky. I mean, things yeah. arise, and people feel pain, and we move on, and everybody's eager and at the edge of their seats. It's just... It uh, has a certain X factor that is very, very potent. This is where I think we, you, you see how the, the developmental arc, um, how so much of it is, is somewhat of a bell curve, so to speak. You know, uh, infants can't lie. They don't have enough mental apparatus. A child at 16 months can hide an emotional state from a parent. So they have enough neurological development uh, to hide an emotional state. At three years old, a child can lie. Um, They have enough neurological development to lie. It's actually a developmental uh, milestone. And at six, they're lying a couple of times a day. And so now they progress. They progress into, you know, blue, tell the truth, don't lie. They progress into relativistic stuff uh, at, at orange. But then, of course, like I said, in orange... If it, if it creates success and it's by the rules, then it's acceptable. It proceeds to green, where, yeah, but if somebody's not being cared for in a way that I, that, in a way that I can idealistically imagine them being cared for, then, then I need to stop the whole process. Um, but as we develop, as we have more self-awareness, more and more and more we develop a sense of, of self, self-aware observation and transparency. We're, all, we're observing ourselves with interest. So if we're in conflict, or, or even, I mean, this happened with Becky once. Becky uh, had, had completely forgotten about meeting her friend, and she was 10 minutes late. And so she said, I'm going to call her and tell her I went to sleep. And she did and called her, and she think it was frantically getting ready. And, and Becky's really adorable when she's frantic. And I said, you just lied to her. You just called her up and lied to her. She said, you, were, you bet I did. I'm not going to tell her I forgot about it. <laughs> and then I said, well, I don't want you to lie to me. And she looked at me, and she said, I lie to you all the time, Keith. <laughs> God bless I said, her. I love Becky. <laughs> she said, yeah, I lie to you all the time. I said, Really? <laughs> I said, well, I don't want you to do that. She said, well, forget about it. You know, like, I'll... <laughs> it, was, it was just, it was one of those... Well, those, it's, it's those... real. I mean, that's yeah. actually one of the biggest truths that one can tell. I you know, know it was. About, it was... about oneself or, uh, you know... Again, uh, the, the standard that, as I, as I think of this as a practice, is what am I trying to do here? Am I, is this a yes. compassionate thing? Am I trying to create a bigger love for the whole system or am I contracting and entertaining myself or defending or inflating myself or, you know, is it a lie of omission, a lie of commission? Uh, you know, this is not, a, it's a little slipperier than you think at, at first glance. 
very slippery. There's omission, there's commission, there's conscious and unconscious lying. There, there's also, the, you know, as you go deeper into, into looking for more rigorous truth, you'll find that there's subtle um, lower left quadrant standards that people will embrace. And those standards then cause them to lie to themselves and other people. For instance, a lower left quadrant standard in a lot of couples is it's not, it's, it's not moral to be mad at each other. You know, if you're mad at me or, or judging me critically, that's wrong. That's bad. So say we judge each other critical, get mad at each other all the time. Uh, so I'm working with a couple and, you know, she says, well, you know, you, you, know, you do that, you know, you're just like your, your bully brother when you do it. You know, he just looks up. She says, now you're mad. He says, no, I'm not. He's lying about that. And so I'll say, well, it looks to me like you're mad. He's, then he starts defending himself. And then I'll go, wait a second. So you guys have a rule where it's against the rules to be mad at each other. You know, one of you, if you're mad or if, you have, or if you're critical, I had this with another couple. You know, he says that I'm being critical. Well, you have a rule against, you can't be critical? No, that's wrong to be critical. That, you know, we're not supposed to be judgmental. So I go, well, so let me see. All the times you guys are judgmental or critical, basically you have to lie about it. For, and then if you're trying to be congruent, which will drive you crazy, you have to lie to yourself about it. No, I'm not being critical. <laughs> it's, you know, it's fine with me that you, you, know, you forgot to pay the bills and that they turned off the water and, and, and the gas. You know, you know, you're mad about it. No, I'm not. You know, you're criticizing me because this is the second time I'm doing it. No, I'm not criticizing you. Well, of course you're criticizing them. Of course you're mad about it. And so now we have to go to those deeper lower left quadrant biases and say, all right, now, you know, if your values aren't consistent with your behavior, you've got to change either your behavior or your values or both of them. And, if, and that's yeah. why truth is relative. That's why it's all relative truth until we finally get to that one spot of absolute truth. And once we embrace that, once we embrace relative truth and we're looking for the, the most compassionate truth, those values become visible and accessible and we can change them pretty fast. And those are the relationships that, that tend to accelerate. Well, I just love that, that little move you did a minute ago where you, this is all relative truth. And yeah. so relative truth, I mean, if we're talking about the, you know, the two truths doctrine of the absolute truth, the oneness, and relative truth, the many, then the relative truth is relative. It really does shift all over the place in different stages and levels and any types and whatever situations um, sort of, you know, make it slippery, as we say. But the, the, the touchstone, the thing that sort of rightens it or straightens it out or trues it up, if you will, is that reconnection with absolute truth. And, and the standard, um, is it, is it yeah. violent or is it, yes. or is it healing and nourishing? You know, Bruce Lipton said in the, in the Biology of Transcendence that on the most basic level um, of cells, they're either, they're either growing or they're defending. Okay, so as above, so below. We can go forward. If in, if in our discourse, you know, somebody is being diminished, you know, if someone is being attacked, okay, well, that's violent, and then that's a level of lie that needs to be addressed. If we go at our level of discourse and um, we are supporting growth and development and compassion, then um, in that situation, lies actually might serve the highest good. Um, yeah. And it really does fall into that dichotomy, that violent, nonviolent dichotomy. And I, I don't even like violent, nonviolent, because nonviolent has violence in it. You know, it's either yeah. violent or it's healing. You know, you're either defending or growing. Yeah. 
No, you know, that's destroying right. I mean, I or you creating a, a good observation earlier in the call where you talked about, you know, we've moved from physical violence to emotional violence. Uh, yeah. That's a, actually a developmental move, although, you know, there's plenty of, of, of uh, emotional violence and physical violence, but it's still violence. You know, mm-hmm. it's still doing damage to another person or to yourself. And that's, uh, as we use this truth as a practice, it's something we want to notice. Yeah. And you notice how po- people are very powerful when they t- develop a system that's coherent. And so this is the, the ultimate paradox of the American political system, in my opinion. Um, y- we have two examples in the last 15 years of a coherent American political system in, in two different realms. One is the current example in California. You know, Jerry Brown is, is I, I believe, is an integral leader who basically has the capacity to work collaboratively in governing California. Mm-hmm. And so what's happened in California? California is coming back really well. California economy, we went from going from a, de- a deficit to having a surplus. Um, violence is down in California. There's uh, uh, shifts into um, a more cooperative and more effective uh, health care, that kind of stuff. In other words, we kind of have a healthy green thing going in California because we have a coherent system that is organized around um, green and teal values. That, and, you know, and since it's healthy, you know, Brown, is, is, it's a business-friendly thing. You know, like, you know, he's an integral guy, so the business people are pretty happy with Brown because business is doing great in California. Because that's one example. Then we have the post-9-11 America where everybody was organized around, there's our enemies, let's go stomp them and attack them. You kind of like Reagan killed a rattlesnake. You know, the famous Reagan rattlesnake uh, story. Um, you remember that, right? Yeah. No, okay. remind me. Well, um, the, the, the Soviet Union was, when they found out about this, their psychologists went nuts. You know, Reagan had a ranch, actually in Gaviota, which is about 15 miles from where I am here. You know, Santa Barbara has a lot uh-huh. of weird stuff going on. So he was up there on his horse one time. You know, Reagan loved horses. Best thing for the inside of a man is the outside of a horse, said Ronald Reagan. Um, Mm. And so he was getting on his horse one time, and there was a rattlesnake by one of his boots. And so without thinking, he just killed the thing. He just stomped it to death. Bam, 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 bam. Okay? So the Soviets went crazy over there. They went, "Uh uh-oh, you know, don't mess with this guy. You know, we do not want to challenge Reagan because look at his immediate reaction. Okay, that is... And basically, that is a healthy blue reaction to someone. That's a street fight. You know, to yeah. me, you know, if I'm walking down the street, somebody comes out of something and, and, and whacks me, I'm going to do something horrible to that person as quickly as I can. And, you know, and I'll feel yeah. virtuous doing it. Um, I might get sick afterwards. People usually do after physical violence. But, you know, during the time, you know, that's, that's the more moral response. Mm-hmm. And so those are two coherent, you know, responses. But America is rarely like that. America is in a dialectic designed deliberately by the founding fathers to not be able to get too coherent because they were really scared of the runaway nature of human consciousness in any direction. And they wanted to make sure that no matter where America was accelerating, somebody somewhere in a disenfranchised or an enfranchised minority would slow everything down. Um, They they sacrificed speed of development for not letting anybody be on top without being challenged by somebody else. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Those yeah, guys I mean, the contention, you know, having things in contention, this is one of the things I've learned from you, Keith, is that, 
you know, clearly we're wired for conflict and contention and survival of the fittest and all of that good stuff, but we're also wired for love and connection and, um, you know, collaboration. Yeah, and caring like, for each other. I like that both of those, yeah, and caring for each other. And, and I like that both of those are online. And this greater topic of truth and truth is violence and truth is a practice or lying is violence and mm-hmm. truth is a practice really just fits into how I can see my life in greater detail and, you know, have more options and and bring more wisdom and compassion and intelligence online uh, in my interactions. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for doing all that stuff. That's why everybody loves you, because you do that. (laughs) (laughs) That's my practice. Well, yeah. Well, it's, it's yeah, obvious I mean, it that that's your practice. You know, I mean, this is you know, as we're moving, you know, every stage of development has practices, and and that's yep. one of the things that we know. As you said this earlier, is that just the meta practice is self observation. Yeah. And just seeing yourself in ever greater resolution, and also other people and the the world itself. So first, second, and third person, greater resolution, greater resolution. It's a practice in and of itself. That's why in, in integral mindfulness, I, the basic foundation practice was just observing sensation, emotion, thought, judgment, and desire with acceptance and caring intent. Just that. Yeah. You know, and actually, Keith, that adds, that last part has been very helpful to me because I was trained in more the you know, strict Vipassana, that's my original meditation training, and we would observe with mindfulness and equanimity. We could go as far as equanimity. But to, to literally bring on caring intent is actually in some ways the Mahayana or the second turning. But yes. it's um, really, really important. And, you know, I appreciate that. Which brings us to what I would like our next dialogue to be. Okay, what's that? I would like our next dialogue to be you and me breaking the cultural taboo about talking about personal spiritual practices and you talking about your two or three favorite current spiritual practices and me describing my two or three favorite current spiritual practices. I think, think, you know, we have people that, I think that would be very interesting to our listeners. Yeah. And I I think that... would be interesting to me. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, as I was saying, you know, as you move into integral, it's not like any one lineage or any one practice. I mean, we're, we're, I want everything. You know, we're the everything people. And yeah. so that, there's an upside and a downside to that. It gets kind of confusing and, and uh, you're trying to create a new kind of coherence around having had contact with so many different, wonderful, amazing aesthetics uh, of spiritual practices. And to try to create something coherent is the challenge of integral. It's one of, it's one of the things we're doing. And all the time be aware that you have a consciousness that is always being influenced by all your developmental um, uh, stages, that they're always there coming out again. You know, I had this happen this morning. I had a guy call me and leave me some really good feedback about a case that we're sharing. I'm working with uh, the one partner, and he's working with a couple. You know, in certain situations, it's not a good idea to, to do individual work and couples work with the same therapist. 
Okay, so he gave me that feedback. And so usually sometimes when I get feedback like that, and it was great feedback, but I felt a little bit ashamed. I thought, Hmm. why do I feel ashamed? And I realized it's because I related to him at my level or even lower than my level on my interior psychotherapy, you know, hierarchy. And it was shameful to get feedback that was useful feedback from somebody at my level or a little bit lower. If I would have experienced him as a little higher than me on, on it, and I have a friend I just talked to today who I do experience. I, I've been calling her to ask her for you know, input on cases for, for the last 15 years. She's a really good friend of mine, Janet Loxley. I, don't mind, I enjoy it when I get it from her. I didn't enjoy it from him because that little, that, that, that archaic part of me said it's shameful to get it from somebody at the same level or lower. It's, yeah. And so it felt bad even though it was great feedback, but it's, it's, okay. it's, it's not shameful to get it from somebody higher, and so it's more fun. I thought, God, right. that's, that's just coming right out of my unconscious. I was just yeah. observing that just with my mouth was just dropping open going, God, yeah. Keith. Yeah, well, there are a couple things that come to mind for me with that story, and, and one of them is, and this is another practice I'm doing more and more these days, is to realize that everybody has these areas where they spike into genius, even if it's just momentary and, and, and like this guy, he actually got one, he got something right. You know, it's either the stopped clock theory that he just, just dumb luck <laughs> or in that moment, his antenna picked up, you know, something that yours hadn't. Well, actually and, this guy is a really good therapist. In fact, he probably is at the same level as I am and the, the kind of work that, that we, that we share but my unconscious hadn't hadn't put him in that category yet, you know. It, it was yeah. that complicated, and I'm going, okay. So that's always happening. We always have all those complicated forces working in our. And so, what can we do? Well, we, the best we can do is just kind of observe ourselves going through the world, and recognizing the emotional signatures of certain situations. And this is what I like about lying as emotional mm-hmm. violence. This is a kind of final thing about lying. There's an a. There's an emotional signature of, of violence that, that you can get. There's a flavor to it that you can mm-hmm. understand when it's towards yourself or towards other people. You can feel it. You can feel it when you're experiencing it from somebody coming from you. And they might not intend it, but you might experience it that way. And you can experience it when it's, in, when it's towards somebody else. And we are invested developmentally in not paying attention to that flavor, to that sense. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, mm-hmm. violence was originally designed evolutionarily to protect us, and so we don't want to have to self-observe. We want to just act on the impulse to protect ourselves. Right. But now that we have society where we actually have levels of cooperation and levels of collaboration that are just unknown in the history of the universe as far as we know, now yeah. basically those defensive impulses now become either impediments or sources of deeper insight and development if we can self-observe and then make adjustments to our values and behavior. Yeah. And so there's a subtle level of, of continuing to access those experiences, the sensation of the lie, mm-hmm. the sensation of the violence. And then if you're in a safe relationship, say like you and I have, interested collaborations and, and then shared, we spaced self-observation, mm-hmm. which is like what you guys did in the living room over the weekend. Yeah. That just accelerates development. Yeah. And that was one of the sort of orienting principles is let's just get in touch with our deep curiosity about mm. each other. That already turns all these things that I thought you were trying to annoy me into 
<laughs> you know, oh, how interesting. Isn't that interesting? You know, really, I mean, where is that coming from? And what's, and, uh, you know, I'm curious, instead of critical. And it changes everything. I think the, the, the experience of interest, the experience of curiosity, the experience mm-hmm. of compassion, you know, those flavors, those flavors are generally ex- uh, associated with the beautiful, good, and true. Yeah, they and are. so you can you can look at those, and so if I've, I trust stuff that comes out of me that has those flavors in it, that has those sensations. Yeah, me too. Me I too. distrust stuff that comes out of me that's colored by shame, threat, anger, or fear. Yeah. Um, no, I know not. there's truth in shame, threat, anger, and fear, and even depression yeah. and sadness and anxiety, but I know that I have to dialysize those, those emotions to get to the truth beneath them. And if I don't do the dialysis, I'm at risk to do violence. I'm at risk to lie to myself or to other wow. people. Yeah. Wow, Keith. Right on, man. That's a, it's a great transmission, and, and it really is. You're laying out some fruitful new territory and practices for how to move forward as we consciously develop. Yeah, we're laying down track. Thank you. Absolutely. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, and even... Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, I think we could call it quits here now. And uh, I think we have a, an agenda for our next call about our spiritual practices. I think that's cool. Yeah. Well, you so, and so I are going to break the taboo. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff and Keith are going to go. We're going to integral naked. We're going to go. We're going to be transparent about our current spiritual practices, <laughs> our own relationships with spirit and God. Tune in to find out. <laughs> Wow, scaring me already. (laughs) All right, my friend. Will you take care of yourself, and we'll talk to you then. Thanks, everybody. You too. Thanks, everybody.